Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, it's lovely to be here. Um, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to talk with you about God's Word this morning. If you've got your Bibles, which I hope you have, and in fact, uh, as I came in, Peggy and Peter were handing out Bibles to you all, so you should have one. I don't know what page number we're on, but um, somebody might like to yell that out. 874 in the church Bibles, so... Uh, 1571. Okay, pick whichever one you like. If you find yourself in an Obadiah and you think, geez, making lots of sense of Obadiah, then can I say, don't ask me back. Um, But I'm with you for two weeks and I'm looking forward to it. Today we're in Luke 7 and then next Sunday we're going to have a think about one minute after we die. We're going to pull back the curtain on death and we're we're going to stick our head in and have a look at what happens in the afterlife for those who follow Jesus and those who don't. And that'll be from Luke 16. Uh, Why don't I pray? Would you bow your heads with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for fun, uh, for the fact that we can jump up and dance and clap our hands with children in knowing that Jesus is indeed our Saviour and Lord. We thank you for interviews and the humour that we can enjoy together. And Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask now as we open your word and consider a moment in Jesus' interaction with people just like us, that we might be moved to respond to him rightly. So by your Holy Spirit, teach us, we pray. And we commend ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sadly, there are many people for whom love has become highly overrated in our community. I remember one little girl, she came home from preschool very excited and told her mum how she'd heard the story of Snow White. Uh, She said, mum, enthusiastically, mum, you should have heard this story today a story about a girl called Snow White and how the prince kissed her and she woke up from her sleep and she said, and mum, do you know what happened next? Her mother said, yes, sweetie, I do. They lived happily ever after. And she said, no, they got married. (laughs) It's a worry, isn't it? I heard of an older lady, and I hope this isn't one of you, She said she wanted to marry four men in her life. First a banker, second a movie star, then she wanted to marry a minister of religion and finally a funeral director. And when someone asked her why, she said, well, it's simple, one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready and four to go. (laughs) Now there's, I've got to say, a woman confused about love, not to mention her confusion about life. But young or old, certain things happen in life, don't they, to make us feel that love is highly overrated. To kids, it may be the bizarre, you know, seeing mum and dad kiss in the kitchen. Oh, how terrible. That puts them off. But to an adult, it's, of course, much deeper than that, isn't it? It seems impossible to let your heart be touched without it at some point in life 
actually being crushed. And if you could survey your life quickly this morning, I reckon most of us could probably reflect on moments when we came to the conclusion in our lives that love can be highly overrated. Of course, it's from those surveyed moments of love's hurts that we might want to ask ourselves the question, what does love that's highly rated look like? Well, in the part of the Bible we're looking at this morning, there are three people before us. There is Jesus, there is a Pharisee by the name of Simon, and there is an unnamed woman. Out of curiosity, not out of friendship, the Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner. And at this point, he's not unlike many people today. He's curious about this man called Jesus. The man is a Jew, but I have to say I, I, I actually met Buddhists and Hindus, atheists and agnostics who are curious about Jesus. They want to know about this character. Perhaps you are like that as well. I don't know any of you uh, much. I've said hello to a few of you this morning. Perhaps you're here for the first time. I don't know. And perhaps you've come because you're curious about Jesus. And that's not a bad thing. You know, curiosity might kill the cat, but it won't kill you, will it? Is that right? Hello, you can respond. Are you still with me? All right. Okay, Trevor, by the way, Trevor did say to me this morning that um, it's a great church. You can speak for an hour and a half. Is that, <laughs> that right? As he said, that I normally go for two, but I've only got an hour and a half. All right? um, somehow word reaches a woman that Jesus is dining at the Pharisees and uninvited she comes for dinner. And I want you to note the description of her in sentence number 37. You see it there? She's a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. In verse 39, even the Pharisee, we're told, knew her to be a sinner. She was notorious, it seems, for her sinfulness. She may be nameless in the story, but she's known in town. Few sins can give such notoriety, and we're not told her sin, but it's likely that she's prostituted herself. I think it's likely she has felt many a person close to her heart, even felt their heart beat against her own breasts. But the only touch of love that she has ever known has been pretend. And all of us know that one of the most powerful ways to crush the human heart is to take from it and to leave it untouched by love. That's what pretend love does. Of course, you don't have to be a notorious sinner, do you, to have experienced pretend love or even to have pretended to love. How are you going with that? Been on the receiving end of it? Or are you the deliverer of it? Felt pretended love or delivered pretended love? Because when you start to play pretend with the things as close to our humanness as the need to be loved, you begin to lose yourself to a pretend life with pretend lovers 
And the result for so many is to feel and speak of love as being highly overrated. Pretend is never as good as the reality, is it? And when pretend living is given a moment's honesty, the pretend inevitably gives way to emptiness. And I actually wrote something down here this morning, and I've now lost my little card, which was here. Here it is. When pretend living is given a moment's honesty, the pretend inevitably gives way to emptiness. And I want you to hear this. Jesus specialises in the empty. Got that? Jesus comes and will come for eternity to fill our emptiness with himself. Of course, the strange thing about emptiness is that it can be a filled emptiness, can't it? Not with Jesus, but with other things. Guilt, shame, aloneness, and the sorrow of life. Perhaps that's why people keep on with the delusion of pretend when it comes to love in order to suppress their emptiness. Of course, there's no shortage of deluded people who seek love, is there? I read of a young man who was so determined to win the affections of a lady that refused to even, who, who refused to even talk with him, that he decided that the way to, into her heart would be through the mail. And so he began to write love letters to her. He wrote one love letter every day. Six or seven times a week, she got a love letter from him, and when she didn't respond to his in, increasing desires, he actually increased the output of his letters. And he wrote more and more, three notes every 24 hours. In all, he wrote her more than 700 letters. And she ended up marrying the postman. <laughs> it's not hard to imagine his disappointment for that poor man, is it? Eh? But I wonder if you can imagine the response of someone who's only ever known pretended love and then become the recipient of love's reality. Well, observe this dinner scene with me. This woman comes uninvited to dinner. The guests, including Jesus, recline at the table uh, on the floor with their feet away from the table. She stands behind Jesus and eyes that once would have scoped out the room for the possibility of her sin, now weep. And the tears fall like rain upon his feet. And she takes her hair and she uses it as a cloth to dry his feet. Her lips, she presses against those same feet and kisses them. And with perfume, she anoints them. I mean, could you imagine anyone doing that sort of thing today? Trevor's here at church on a Sunday morning and a woman walks through the back door. She comes down the aisleway and while Trevor's preaching, she begins to weep on his feet and starts kissing his feet. And you'd be thinking, what the heck's going on? You know, what's Trevor done? You, would, you couldn't imagine that someone would do that, could you? It's extraordinary. This woman's actions are excessive. Because perhaps for the first time in her life, she realised that she could actually experience the true excesses of God's love for her. 
a love that would empty her emptiness and fill her life with the fullness of forgiveness, acceptance, salvation, and joy. She comes for God's love recognized in the person of Jesus. And it's not hard to guess how deep is her love for this Christ. Now, I don't want you to miss the Pharisee amidst all this action because this lady probably you're thinking she doesn't really relate to me all that well, but maybe the Pharisee does. Pharisees were a religious group in Israel, kind of like a denomination in our churches. And typical of, of those who belong to their denomination, they prided themselves on their own goodness and revealed a tendency to a self-righteousness that would point the condemning finger at those not as good as themselves. So not surprisingly, this particular Pharisee can't accept what is happening at his dinner party. We read verse 39, when the Pharisee had who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. It's a staggering scene, really, if you watch the passage very carefully. See, while the woman in her humility, thanksgiving and desire to give honour and love can't get past Jesus' feet, the Pharisee can't get past being horrified by Jesus' willingness to respond to her in love. And when I see that, I think, oh, thank you, God, that you're not like the Pharisee. Because we'd be done if he was, wouldn't he? So while Jesus gathers this woman into his care and knowing what the Pharisees was, was thinking, he tells Simon a parable that one hopes would awake Simon to his need to come into the care of Jesus, just as the woman had. Sentence number 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Did you notice the change here? I wonder if you picked it up. Notice, will you, that at this point, the one previously called by his religious position, a Pharisee, is now addressed for the first time by his personal name, Simon. Now, I don't know why Luke does that, but I will say this. There comes a time when you have to look beyond your family or your religious or philosophical grouping, don't you, to have a look at Jesus for yourself. It's hard for us sometimes to look for ourselves at Jesus when we spend mostly every day looking at life through the formulated positions we think other people expect us to have. Now understand, Simon is a Pharisee and there is expected things that a Pharisee should, should think. But Jesus calls on Simon now, not the Pharisee in Simon, to consider what's going on. Jesus wants to address Simon about what God thinks so that Simon, not the Pharisee, can think like God and not like a Pharisee. And he says in verse 41, 
two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Now the story Jesus tells Simon is a pretty simple one, isn't it? And the answer is an easy one, don't you think? Don't you think? Hello, you still there? Yeah, good. I like a little kind of group response. Maybe it's coming from Shoalhaven Heads where we don't have as many people in the building at the one time. And uh, let me assure you, they are more than boisterous sometimes. Even when I ask rhetorical questions, they're very quick to want to give answers. And even when I don't ask questions, they still want to give the answers. So anyway, um, but it's a simple story, isn't it? We all know that the greater the debt cancelled, the greater our love and appreciation will be. I mean, imagine you owe $500,000 to the bank over this side and one of you on this side owes $1,000 to the bank. And the bank says... We're going to cancel both your debts. You'd say, well, that's a miracle in and of itself. Banks cancelling debts? <laughs> really? Okay, but that's what happens. And I say, which one of you would be most thankful, do you think? And we go, oh, of course, the person on this side with the $500,000 debt. It's a simple thing, isn't it? Of course, some people can't imagine being forgiven by God. Forgiveness is not freely offered by Allah to the Muslim. The God of the Hindus really only adds confusion to this issue. While the Buddhist, on the cycle of becoming, demands karma be given. That you get what you deserve. And so it's no surprise really that some people think, I can't imagine God forgiving. But there's nothing we really need more than that, is there? Jesus speaks of the forgiveness of God for the woman, the Pharisee, and for us here. This woman's sin had put her in great debt before God. That's obvious. But if you're not watching carefully, you may miss what Jesus is trying to say to Simon. Look at it again, verse 41. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he cancelled the debt of both. Did you see that? By comparison to this woman, Simon may well have owed little. But Simon wasn't sinless. He also had a debt and his situation at one level is exactly the same as hers. Neither he or the woman had what it takes to repay God. Simon needed to realise that just like the woman that he condemned and didn't want in his home, he also needed the mercy of forgiveness. I love Jesus' words in verse 44. I don't know if you've ever focused on them. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? What a dumb question. Don't you think? 
Doesn't that surprise you? It's a dumb question. Of course he sees the woman. The whole story has been about the woman, hasn't it? He saw the woman with his eyes, but he never saw her from the heart or with the heart of God, did he? He couldn't even see, in the end, the truth about himself. And I wonder how many of us that could be said of. Do you see the truth about yourself? Simon and the woman, they are two people worlds apart, aren't they? She is the Cairns prostitute. He is the local school principal. She works in a brothel. He actually is the solicitor who looks after everybody's affairs. She is selling her body on the street. But she runs the local sewing guild. Two people, worlds apart from one another, aren't they? But their worlds measure exactly the same distance from heaven. An insurmountable distance that neither of them can actually look after themselves. And while the woman's loving excesses reveal she understood Jesus to be the answer to that distance, Jesus seeks to help Simon understand the answer as well. Verses 47 to 48, Jesus says to Simon, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. She comes, she washes his feet with her tears. Simon didn't even have a bowl of water to wash Jesus' feet. She kisses his feet. Simon gives him no welcoming kiss, as the culture would suggest. She loves much, but Simon, he's just interested. He's curious, but there's no love. And to this woman, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. How good are those last few words coming from the king of heaven to a people full of worldly failures? Are they good? If you're not nodding your head, do you not know this? How good are these words? Your sins are forgiven spoken to us by the king of kings and the lord of lords how deep is the love of god to forgive us well let me just pause for a moment and reflect on that with you as we come to the conclusion if you thought this woman was excessive in her response to jesus can i say in luke's gospel you ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus' love is marked by the most ridiculous excesses of self-giving in Luke's gospel. At the end of this gospel, he'd be crucified on a cross. 
The purpose of his death to bear the punishment of human sin so that sinners could be forgiven. So that pretend love we play with could give way to the reality of knowing that we are deeply loved by God. And no matter how the world treats you, no matter how people might actually pretend to love you and hurt you, there is one moment that you could never, ever forget or not rejoice in. And that is the true love, the excessive love of Christ who is crucified for us. The purpose of his death to bear the punishment of human sin so that sinners could be forgiven. While the woman's heart remained untouched by so many lovers, Jesus loved her enough, please hear this, to take nothing from her, loved her enough to hold nothing against her, and loved her enough to give his life for her. Can you apply those same words to yourself this morning? Jesus loves you enough to take nothing from you except the sin that would condemn you. He loves you enough to hold nothing against you, no condemnation you need now fear. He loves you enough to give his life for you. Jesus stands ready to cancel your debt. So let me ask you, is that enough to have you love him? Do you love him? If you will love him, if you will make a commitment to follow Jesus, then you might like to join me in this prayer. It's a short prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are sorry for offending you. We don't want to pretend to love you anymore. Please accept our thanks for dying for us on the cross. Thank you for cancelling the debt of all our sins. Please help our love for you now to exceed our love for everything else. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. <laughs>